again, welcome to Santa Barbara Community Church. It is good to be together. And um, my name is Benji. I serve as one of the pastors here. And today is Sunday, December 17th, 2023, which means that not only is today the third Sunday of Advent, not only is today my brother's 40th birthday, and that would mean a lot to him, but that's not true. <laughs> he's, not, he, he's not here. Um, It means that we are now eight days away from Christmas. Eight days away from Christmas. During the nine o'clock service, when I mentioned that, there was a lot of murmuring. And I realize now, there's probably people um, realizing they have a lot of shopping to do. But I internalized it for a moment as like, my math was wrong. And I was like, oh, math on the fly, not my strength. But um, I think I'm right. So eight days away from Christmas, which means the expectation meter is rising, isn't it? Many of us can easily remember the childhood anticipation that marked the Christmas season, right? From the moment that the Toys R Us catalog came in the mail in October, and you'd start just pouring over that thing, right? Searching every single page. You start crafting your list. You start dreaming of the moment that you'd unwrap that perfect gift, and you'd hold it in your hands. And you would look at it and say, you complete me. Right? Right? If you are here for the first time today or visiting from out of town, welcome. So thrilled that you are here. I'd love to meet you after the service. If you have been with us for a number of Sundays, you already know that we have been spending this Advent season intentionally looking back to stories from the Old Testament that we're calling Echoes of Advent. These stories that help us situate our own desire for hope and for peace, and then today for joy, and into the broader story of the people of God. This morning, we are going to immerse ourselves in a story of longing, one not unlike the kind prompted by that Toys R Us catalog of long ago. If you have a Bible with you, would you open it to the book of First Samuel? First Samuel chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Feel free to use that table of contents if that is helpful as you seek out where First Samuel is. It's going to drop us into the middle of the story of the people of God, the people of God known as Israel. And in a moment, we're going to jump directly into the middle of First Samuel 1, but we're going to be dropping into the middle of a narrative. And so I want to give us a little bit of background. First Samuel 1 opens by introducing us to Elkanah. Elkanah and his two wives, yes, you heard that correctly, two wives, Hannah and Penaniah. Now, we learn immediately that while Elkanah had children with Penaniah, he, had, he and Hannah had no children together, despite the not at all hidden secret that Elkanah loved Hannah more than he loved Penaniah. And unsurprisingly, as you might imagine, this made for some family tension, So we read this, for example, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. When Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Notice that the author doesn't even use Penaniah's name here, simply her rival. These are some dynamics in this family. Now, as we've talked about, even as recently as two weeks ago, Not having children in the patriarchal ancient Near East was a very big deal. Children meant security for aging parents. It meant an opportunity to pass down an inheritance. It meant the opportunity to establish a lasting legacy. But not having a child, and particularly a male heir, it meant devastation 
and often desperation. And it's that sense of desperation and devastation that Hannah carried with her on a trip to Shiloh. So last week, Ken walked us through a text in which Solomon talked about wanting his longing to build the temple in Jerusalem. But in Hannah's day, that project was still about a century in the future. And so if you were to read through the book of Joshua, you'd come in Joshua 18.1 to this interesting note. The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. That was the tabernacle. And so by the time of our passage... Worship in Shiloh had taken on enough ritual to become something of an annual destination for worship and sacrifice for faithful Israelites. And it is on one such trip to Shiloh that Hannah's despair over her childlessness reaches its pinnacle. And so we read this, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, And not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. That is a marker of something that has been dedicated, a person that's been dedicated over to the Lord. So when faced with enormous odds and desperate circumstances, Hannah prays. In fact, she prays so fervently that the priest on duty, a man named Eli, he thinks she's day drunk. Yeah, you can read it at home. It'll be some fun Advent Sunday afternoon reading. Kids, grab your cocoa and come read this story called Plastered in Prayer. <laughs> That's not a heading in your Bible, just to sure look for it. So after pouring out her heart in desperate prayer, the text tells us this, the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now, before we move on, I just want to name the fact that this text is both heartwarming and unsettling. Hannah prays out of a place of desperation and even seems to make something of a bargain with God, and it's one that God responds to favorably. And if we're honest, this is kind of uncomfortable, because we all know people who have prayed just as fervently and not seen God move in the ways that they had asked him to. Or maybe that's your own story. Maybe that's the story of your own fervent prayers. I want to be really clear that this prayer is descriptive and not prescriptive. There is no forthcoming The Prayer of Hannah book and study guide, at least not one that I'm going to be writing. Because what we see in 1 Samuel 1 is a particular story of God's redemptive work in the life of one woman in Israelite history. It is not a step-by-step guide for getting God to dance to our song. The truth is that the text doesn't actually give us much basis for assessing Hannah's prayer. What it does give us, however, is a reminder that God's movements toward his people are always consistent with his gracious character. And that remains true even when we don't always see the result we had hoped and even prayed for. So all of that is a really long introduction to the text we're actually going to look at today. So if you are able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word? 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. 
When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may have a seat. Well, what we have just read is, I believe, perhaps one of the most Adventy texts in the whole Old Testament. So Advent gets its name from the Latin term Adventus, which means come, coming or arrival. We've talked multiple times over the last few weeks how Advent is really an in-between season. So Advent uniquely acknowledges the brokenness of the world as we experience it in the day-to-day. And because of that, Advent has potential to draw our hearts forward to the promises of the future with confidence that they will be fulfilled because of God's demonstrated faithfulness in the past. And so if you leave out any of those elements, if you deny the brokenness of the world, if you forget God's past faithfulness, you fail to anticipate the glories of the future, you are left with something much less than Advent. And that's a pattern that Hannah's story, I think, uniquely rehearses. Think about this with me. When we first meet Hannah, she is a woman experiencing the world's brokenness in her very body. And as a result, she is left with longing, a deep and lasting longing that goes on for years. And we also see that she is a woman with a fervent dedication to prayer, for God to move in faithfulness to his character and his promises. And he finally does move. And he grants her the longing of her heart and the conception of a son that she carries for nine months in her own womb, and she delivers and she weans, and then offers this long prayed and hoped for child back to the Lord to be raised by someone else. How much time had Hannah spent dreaming of the moment when she would unwrap the perfect gift of a son, hold him in her hands, and finally feel complete? When she returns to Shiloh, it must have been with a profound combination of both gratitude and grief. 
And somehow, despite that background, in chapter 2, verse 1, Hannah's song begins with these words, my heart rejoices. I did a little digging this week into the original Hebrew and discovered that the term translated here as rejoices means rejoices. I know, it's very insightful. You're welcome. I think it's a notable feature of her character. Given what we know about her story, given what we know about her longings, given how long she waited to see her hope fulfilled, only to have her son immediately offered to someone else, it's remarkable that she can say, my heart rejoices. Have you ever met someone and pretty immediately you got the sense that you had something to learn from their character? This is my immediate response to Hannah's story because I am not yet the kind of person who finds it easy to hold on to joy in the midst of difficulties. Greta has said that it is typically easy to know the moment I walk in the door if I've had a hard day. And it's not because my heart rejoices, to be really clear. I can easily get so preoccupied with whatever difficulty or hardship I'm facing, I can allow it to just overlay on all of life and I can brush right past the many reasons that I have for joy. So Hannah's story this week has both challenged and encouraged me. And so if you don't mind, I'll share a couple of things that have stuck with me and maybe they'll be useful in your Advent life too. First, I'm struck by how little of Hannah's song focuses on her situation, but how much of it focuses on who God is and what God does. David Samura comments, the song begins with very personal emotion. The word my comes up three times, but that emotion is soon dropped. After the our God in verse two, the first person disappears completely. And he goes on to point out that Hannah's song centers really on two themes, the Lord's holy sovereignty, that is God's perfection, his unrestrained power, and how he so often uses that power for the reversal of human fortunes in the midst of really dire situations. It's as though Hannah has found the capacity, despite the intensely personal nature of her pain and her grief, she has found the capacity somehow to stand outside of her pain and her grief, to focus on what's true of God. Friends, I cannot even begin to tell you how many times I have benefited from being told, Benji, it's not all about you. Whether from Greta or friends or family or coworkers, I've needed this reminder. And through it, I am slowly learning that if my focus is always on myself, particularly in difficulty, it becomes challenging to maintain joy. I've been appropriately challenged by Hannah's example to live less of my life in the first person. Another thing that struck me from Hannah's song is that her focus on God allowed her to be honest about the darkness, the darkness and the brokenness around her. Hannah's song will never be confused with Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie. See, in that song... Even bad news is recast as good news. So you hear things like, have you heard the news? Everyone's talking. Life is good because everything's awesome. Lost my job? There's a new opportunity. More free time for my awesome community. Stepped in mud, got new brown shoes. It's awesome to win and it's awesome to lose. I didn't write it. I just quoted it. So this might sound at first like a super spiritual approach to life, like some kind of Zen state of contentment. But the Bible deals very differently than this. The Bible 
dares to call loss, loss, and darkness, darkness, and brokenness, brokenness. And in so doing, it trains our longings for the God of great reversals to move in power in ways that only he can. The more grounded in reality approach that we see on full display in Hannah's song celebrates the character of a God who rescues and reverses fortunes, but also names the darkness for what it is. Hannah's world in this song is one in which there are still enemies and armed warriors. There is still hunger and poverty. There is still infertility and injustice. And I would suggest that it's only such an honest and even raw assessment of the world that positions Hannah to properly worship God for his dramatic reversals. These two realities have to be kept in tension if we are to be people of Advent joy. Christians uniquely have a story to tell that both acknowledges the brokenness and also declares the character of the God who lovingly repairs what is broken. Only a God as great as the one described in Hannah's song can be trusted to overthrow and overcome the darkness we see in our hearts and in our world, which has the potential to stir our longings even deeper, not just for God's movement, but actually God's nearness. You already heard this passage in Ken's prayer, but David expresses this longing in Psalm 16. That psalm ends with these beautiful words. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. A couple other English translations draw out the magnitude of this promise even more robustly. So where the NIV says, you will fill me with joy in your presence, the ESV says, in your presence is the fullness of of joy. The Net Bible says, I experience absolute joy in your presence. And these words force me to ask if I believe that the Lord's presence is indeed the place of my fullest, truest, absolute, deepest joy. Because if so, the Lord's presence will increasingly be my quickest refuge and comfort in times of difficulty. Hannah's song seems to indicate that her heart believed this. The story of the Bible begins with a picture of dramatic intimacy between God and his creation. So unique among all of the rival creation stories in the ancient Near East, the Bible tells of God creating a state of perfect relationship between himself and the humans he created in his image. And it is that very intimacy and perfect relationship that was lost in the rebellion of our original parents in the garden. So it ought not to surprise us that God's great rescue plan is so often described in the scriptures with language that depicts restored intimacy and nearness as the pinnacle of God's redemptive work. Jesus beautifully paints just such a picture in John 14. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. So I don't think that this image is meant to conjure up thoughts of a big, big table with lots and lots of food or a big, big yard where we can play football. Apologies to Audio Adrenaline. Shout out to any 90s youth group kids. Ancient patriarchal societies were built around the father's house, the bait of... The extended family would experience the father's house as a place of belonging and blessing and security. 
So for the original audience of John's gospel, the striking thing about Jesus's words here in John 14 would have been God's scandalously gracious invitation to find their blessing, their belonging, and their security in the home of the heavenly father. God's response to broken relationships is to add on to his house so rebels can move back home as beloved children. And we see this even as we get to the very end of the scriptures. We see that the fullness of redemption is expressed in language of proximity, intimacy, restored relationship between God and his people. This is a passage we've looked at each week in Advent, but the Apostle John relays his vision of the completion of God's great rescue plan. And he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And John goes on in the very next chapter and says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. This picture of the fullness of God's presence in the midst of his people, gazing fully on his face, walking by the light radiated from his presence. This is why we could dare to sing what we sang earlier, joy to the world, the Lord is come. And why Isaac Watts included a third verse that names the reality that we live in a world still marked by thorns, by sins, by the curse. And so we await. We await with Advent longing a day when we will know the fullness of joy and the fullness of God's presence. So real talk for a moment. These past number of weeks have featured just a staggering amount of loss in our church family, in my own friend circle, in our broader community. It seems like around every corner are reminders that the brokenness of our world is profound and the darkness is unbearably deep. And I think it's fair to ask, what reason do we have to trust the promises of future joy in the presence of God if the reality of the here and now is this bleak? I think it's fair to ask, was Hannah just naive and then somehow lucky? When the promises of a glorious future seem far off, when our souls can't quite summon the kind of rejoicing in the midst of grief that we find in Hannah's song, we can be heartened by yet another song of surprising joy. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. 
Mary's song, which is known as the Magnificat, it bears enough similarities to Hannah's song to merit its own sermon, but not today. For now, just notice the shared themes of rejoicing in the face of hardship, the declaration of God's great power, the naming of the darkness, and the celebration of God's great reversals. Friends, Bethlehem insists that God has already demonstrated his commitment to restored intimacy through the birth of Jesus of Nazareth when the eternal son of God took on human flesh and stepped into the darkness to shine the unstoppable light of the glory of God, which means that the most honest cry of Advent is simply, God, do it again. In the midst of a world still scarred by the fall, we cry, God, do it again. When we encounter the reality of broken relationships, we cry, God, do it again. When we encounter the reality of warfare, violence, and injustice, we cry, God, do it again. When we encounter the reality of bodies that are breaking down, we cry, God, do it again. And when we encounter the reality of the ongoing presence of sin, death, and loss, we cry, God, do it again. Come and make our joy complete in the fullness of your presence, in a kingdom where death, mourning, and tears are but a distant memory. And by your spirit, teach us to be people of joy, even as we wait in darkness, because we defiantly believe that darkness is not the final word. Fam, that birth in Bethlehem would lead to a cross in Jerusalem. The epitome of the darkness and brokenness of the world, the Roman cross was a cruel instrument of torture and death. And from a certain perspective, it seemed like the darkness had won. And yet, we know that at the moment, the very moment that seemed the darkest, the light of the glory of God shone through. Speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews puts it this way, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, Jesus braved the darkest darkness and the most broken brokenness. And it's that costly pursuit of joy that we remember week by week at this table. At this meal, we join with the Apostle John to confidently declare that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Because of the sacrifice of Christ and his willingness to enter into the darkness, his willingness for the joy set before him to endure the cross, to scorn its shame, to lay down his life for rebels like me and like you, we are welcomed into the Father's house where we find our belonging, our blessing, and our security. We are welcomed into the Father's house and into his presence where alone we find a fullness of joy that puts to shame all that Toys R Us has to offer. If you are a part of the family of God, by virtue of faith and the sacrifice of Christ, you are invited to our family meal. We're going to take bread. We're going to remember that Jesus allowed his body to be pierced. We're going to dip it in wine, and we're going to remember that he allowed his blood to be shed, poured out for the forgiveness of sins, to restore intimacy with God the Father, the one who alone can bring the fullness of joy that we so long for. I also recognize sermons like this and talking about joy and griefs and the loss of the world can stir up a lot. We'll have prayer teams on each side as well as in the back. They would love to pray with you about anything at all and help point you towards the one who alone can bring the joy that your heart is longing for. Let's continue in our worship.